as we raise the question, what happened to humanity in the garden? We've reflected on that a little bit already here in our time together, and it's hard not to open these early chapters of Genesis without keeping Genesis 3 in mind. But the question is important to address. What happened? What happened to humanity in the garden? Because something happened. Because it's not today like it was then. Christian theological tradition is typically referred to the event described in Genesis 3 as the fall. There is biblical support for this label, though it doesn't seem like most interpreters in the early church settled on this label because the one passage that uses a word that we could translate as fall. This morning we want to focus on the narrative itself and seek to draw out what Moses wanted his readers to see clearly. But before we do that, it might be helpful to glance at what other biblical authors said about this passage. Moses never uses the word fall to characterize this event, nor does he refer specifically to sin or guilt in this passage, in spite of the fact that Christian theological debate has centered on answering questions related to sin and guilt. As we'll see, Moses highlights shame and death in the near context of Genesis 3. We'll find the first occurrence of the word sin in chapter 4, but it's disconnected from Adam and Eve's experience in the garden. We'll explore the significance of shame in this passage as we walk through it this morning. In Romans chapter 5, famously, Paul refers to Adam's transgression. And in 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul indicates that Eve became a transgressor. Transgression literally refers to crossing over a boundary and thus is commonly used to describe violating a command or a law. In Romans 5, Paul also describes Adam's act as disobedience, sin, and trespass. We know that what disobedience means. They were commanded, don't eat that particular fruit, and then they ate that particular fruit. Sin refers to missing a target. A helpful English equivalent would be Failure. Sin or failure becomes the large umbrella category in the Bible that more specific terms like transgression, rebellion, and disobedience fit underneath. As Paul characterizes what Adam did in Genesis 3 as sin or failure, he helps us see there was more going on than simply eating a forbidden fruit. It's the word translated trespass in our English Bibles in Romans 5 that could be translated with the word fall. We'll talk more about this in a few weeks, but after all, there is a problem with the word fall. It can minimize what actually happened in Genesis 3. Typically, when we fall down, as I did twice this morning in the driveway, we do so by accident. We trip over some unseen obstacle or we slip on ice. Trespass or offense, as other versions have it, is probably preferred because it captures the intentionality of Moses in describe, or of, of Paul in describing this event in Romans 5. Perhaps we can preserve Paul's choice of this word and its root in the idea of a fall if we imagine something that has truly happened on a number of occasions. Someone looks over a ledge at, say, the Grand Canyon or another high elevation even though there are signs posted telling tourists not to lean over or climb up on the barricades. Because they were unsafely doing what they were told not to do, they plummeted to their death. Perhaps that's something like what we see Adam and Eve doing. Their fall was a process, 
as we'll see, that unfolded apparently relatively quickly, but it wasn't simply about eating a piece of fruit. It was much more serious, much more sinister. Treachery and rebellion are not too strong terms. One author suggests colossal collapse as an alternative. Another commentator says that Moses implies that they jumped, not that they fell. The occasion was a rebellion, not a fall. As many students of Scripture have observed, we have the creator order reversed and overturned here. As one writer expresses it, instead of the created order of authority of God, man, male, female, animal, we have the animal setting the pace to be followed by the woman who is then followed by the man with God's word being ignored by everybody. As we enter into the story of Genesis 3, we need to begin with the transitional verse at the end of chapter 2. Connecting Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1 will help us see how Moses draws a connection between the shrewd serpent and the nude couple. I didn't originate that rhyme, but it helps. I'd like to read through verse 7. So Genesis 2.25 through 3.7. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh Elohim had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made, lo- made themselves loincloths. When we include 2.25 with this opening paragraph of chapter 3, we can see how Moses has bracketed the narrative of their rebellion with references to the nakedness of both Adam and his wife. Moses draws attention to this, repeating the words both and naked in 2.25 and 3.7. Furthermore, Moses utilizes a play on the word translated naked. In 2.25, the Hebrew is arumim. In verse 1 of chapter 3, the word translated crafty or cunning is arum. Arumim, arum. The word play is intended to help readers catch an emphasis that might otherwise be missed. When we read 2.25 only in connection with the previous verses... We highlight how the nakedness of the original couple is a good thing, as it expresses their intimacy. Their lack of shame in front of each other reinforces this. However, introducing the serpent with this description should clue us in that something is about to happen to their nakedness, which probably means we should expect shame to enter the picture through the serpent's craftiness. Moses draws attention to their lack of shame, which sets the scene for what happens next. Enter the serpent, described as more crafty than any other beast of the field. 
just from Genesis 1 to 3, what can we learn about this thing? First, it's characterized as a wild land animal created good by God on day 6 of creation week. Second, according to Genesis 1.30, God designated for every beast of the earth, every green plant for food. I take beast of the field to be a subset of beast of the earth. Third, Yahweh Elohim would have probably brought at least one of these things to Adam, and Adam would have named it serpent. Now, if we put ourselves in the sandals of Moses' original audience, we can say more. When the Israelites wandering in the wilderness heard about this serpent, three dominant realities would have surely come to mind. First, as they had lived for generations in Egypt, they would have been frequently confronted with Pharaoh's famous crown, which featured a cobra raised up ready to strike. This represented the Egyptian goddess called Wajit, who was considered to be the wise protector of other gods, of the realm of Egypt, and particularly of Pharaoh and his family. Secondly, toward the end of the period of Israel's wandering through the wilderness, there was an incident of rebellion which Yahweh chose to deal with by sending venomous snakes into the camp to kill many of the people. Then Moses constructed a metallic serpent, impaled it on a pole, and called on the people who had been bitten to look up at it, and those who did so, God would heal. Third, For the first Israelite readers, it would have been immediately evident that serpents were to be considered unclean. You probably remember that God's curse on the serpent includes a pronouncement that it would travel on its belly. And the only other time that phrase is used in the Bible is when the Mosaic law prohibits the Israelites from eating whatever goes on its belly in Leviticus 11.42. Fascinatingly, of all the animals that Leviticus 11 specifies that the Israelites were forbidden from eating, Moses does not specifically mention serpents. Instead, he points to the distinctive quality of the serpent, its slithering on its belly, as a characteristic that should serve as an off-limits sign to the Israelites. In fact, at least one commentator has suggested that all the unclean animals of Leviticus are off-limits because they resemble the serpent in some specific way, particularly in their direct connection with the dust of the ground. Thus, for the Israelite readers, on a first-time reading, the mention of a serpent in the Garden of Eden takes on an ominous tone. Now, a few weeks ago, we observed how Adam's job description in Genesis 2.15 reflects his identity as a kind of priest. Yahweh Elohim placed him in the garden to serve the God who lives in Eden and to guard his property, as it were. Thus, Adam was to be guardian of the garden, and the phrase translated to work it and to keep it is later used by Moses to describe the service of the Levites in the tabernacle. Thus, if Adam is depicted as a priestly figure and a potentially unclean serpent appears in the sacred precincts of the Garden of Eden, shouldn't Adam be doing something about that? Moses describes the serpent as crafty or cunning or shrewd. The word reflects a kind of wisdom that can be used for good or for evil. So it's ambiguous at this point in the story. The craftiness of the serpent is going to be expressed through its words. The fact that the serpent speaks is not something that Moses particularly highlights as an oddity. I don't think that's because animals typically conversed with Adam and Eve before Genesis 3. But this is our first clue that there's more than meets the eye with this serpent. 
Next week, we'll see the definitive detail that, that shows that Moses intended his readers to recognize another entity indwelling or controlling the serpent, and that this would certainly not have been thought a fantastic detail that suggests that we should read this as a non-historical myth or some kind of symbolic account. At this point, we can point to other scripture that plainly identifies the spiritual power we tend to call Satan or the devil as speaking through the serpent. There are hints of this in a few New Testament passages, but the one text that plainly, explicitly identifies Satan with the serpent in Genesis 3 comes all the way at the end of the Bible in Revelation 12. That raises the question as to why God didn't reveal that detail earlier. Why didn't God unmask the serpent through Moses? There's another point, a more important point that Moses wants to emphasize, a point that would be obscured if Satan were featured directly in this passage. I've already alluded to the point, but I believe it's important for the way Moses has told the story, so I'll repeat it. As one of the beasts of the field, Adam and Eve had been granted authority over the serpent. As an animal, the serpent was at the bottom of the created authority structure. Yet the serpent initiates this conversation, and the serpent manipulates the humans who have the God-given right and authority to subdue, to crush, to expel the serpent from the garden. Moses wants us to see how the serpent upends the created order. If Moses had pointed to a supernatural entity, that would be far less clear. Since Satan chose to use an animal as his mouthpiece, Adam and Eve clearly had the right, the authority, and the ability to resist and indeed overcome. It's not clear whether we should recognize the serpent as being crafty because that's how God designed it, or whether this particular serpent was crafty because Satan made it crafty. Given that its craftiness is expressed particularly through speech, I tend to think Satan made it crafty. And Moses is simply describing this particular serpent. Satan chose one particular animal to seek to overturn the created order. Satan himself is left in the background, in the shadows. And so we'll focus our attention on the serpent. So let's consider the serpent's scheme. This will shake out under four R's. First, the serpent presents a reversal to the woman. Notice that it approaches the woman, but Adam is apparently there too. When the serpent says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, the you is plural. And when the serpent speaks again in verses 4 and 5, the yous will be plural there as well. The serpent addresses the woman and man together, though primarily approaching the woman. By doing so, the serpent is not honoring the created order. And out of its shrewdness, its craftiness, it might be seeking to exploit the reality that the command it's going to call into question was originally delivered before the woman existed. The serpent's first words come in the form of a question about what God said. The serpent gets the first quoted words about God in the Bible, making him the first theologian. Not a very good one, but a theologian nonetheless. Now, we've sought to pay close attention to how God is referred to in these early chapters of Genesis. Moses, the narrator, consistently refers to him as Yahweh Elohim, the Lord, small caps, God, in our English Bibles, in chapters 2 and 3. 
the divine, that's the divine name, Yahweh, and then the title, Elohim, that refers to deity or divinity. The serpent only uses the title Elohim, God. Yahweh is his personal name, his covenantal name, which points to his personal relationship with his people. The serpent knows nothing of this. The serpent can only speak of him as the creator, not one with whom it has a personal relationship. I refer to this as a reversal because the Hebrew in the serpent's question is literally reversed backwards from the way the command was expressed back in Genesis 2.16. Literally, if you'll put the next slide on the screen, you can see the, the way this shakes out. In 3.1, the serpent says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat from every tree of the garden? The command was delivered to Adam in 2.16 as, From every tree of the garden you may surely eat. Instead of the emphatic permission, Surely eat, the serpent replaces surely with not. Reversing and negating the positive command as Yahweh originally spoke it to Adam. The serpent clearly knows the content of the command. Presumably it, or at least Satan, heard the command. And presumably it knows that the command was originally expressed to Adam. Thus the serpent's approach of the woman is strategically cunning. We should probably infer that Adam was responsible for repeating the command to his wife. As it is, the serpent is essentially probing what the woman believes God said based on what her husband told her. The serpent attacks the woman's belief here by this question. And the serpent has worded this reversal in such a way that expresses a tone of shock. The Hebrew expression shaping the question indicates a tone of disbelief. The serpent is basically saying, there's no way God said that, did he? Suddenly, God's words are on trial. Adam and Eve were responsible to simply believe and obey what God had said. Now, the serpent is raising a question that points to the possibility that there might be something wrong about what God said. And again, this question is coming from an animal. The serpent is supposed to be under the authority of the woman, who is supposed to be under the authority of her husband, who is supposed to be under the authority of God. All three of them are under the authority of God. Yahweh had spoken directly to the man, telling him what to eat and what not to eat, and instructing both the man and his wife to subdue and rule over the rest of creation, including the beasts of the field. Now we have a beast of the field questioning the woman about God's word, the highest expression of authority. In verses 2 and 3, we get the woman's response. She recalls God's word, directly contradicting the serpent. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Presumably, Adam repeated God's words recorded in 2, 16 and 17 to his wife prior to the encounter with the serpent. Unfortunately, the woman's response to the serpent mischaracterizes God's word, and it's generally not a good idea to distort God's word when attempting to correct someone else who is distorting God's word. God had commanded Adam emphatically to eat fruit from every tree in the garden. The woman, however, took away the emphasis. God had not merely given them permission to eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. He had encouraged them to eat their fill, to enjoy the abundance He had provided. Just as the serpent left out the word freely that was part of God's actual statement in Genesis 2.16, the woman left out the same word, following the lead of the serpent. 
Thus, as has often been observed, she minimizes their God-given privileges. In verse 3, she identifies the exception, but she doesn't name it. She simply refers to its location. God had specified the off-limits tree by naming it. The serpent will capitalize on the name of this tree, which, of course, points to its function, its importance. So it seems like an important detail that the woman doesn't mention the name of the tree, which God had specified to Adam. Then she quotes the prohibition from God, and she refers to God only as Elohim. She's referring to God in the serpent's terms. That's probably not a good thing. We may have a hint of the woman's already distancing herself a bit from God, following the lead of the serpent. Next, famously, she multiplies God's prohibition, claiming that he commanded them not to touch the tree. While it's a reasonable assumption that touching the tree probably wouldn't be a good idea, and why would they touch it unless they were intending to eat the fruit from it, the fact that she chooses to claim that God said this when we have no record that he said this is a problem. Adding to God's word, claiming he said things he did not say, is repeatedly condemned in Scripture. Finally, she minimizes the penalty in three ways. First, she uses the word translated lest, which is a very weak way to express a negative possibility. Whereas God has emphasized the certainty of the threat, you shall surely die, she quotes God as basically warning, y'all might possibly die if y'all eat from that tree. And third, second, she leaves out the emphatic word surely. And third, she leaves out the tight temporal connection between eating the fruit and dying that God clearly articulates it is when you eat from it that you will surely die. We don't want to over-psychologize the woman here, but her words and her handling of God's words suggest certain things are going on in her heart. I suggest that in verses 2 and 3, we see what Paul saw. The woman was being deceived. By her words, we are seeing her follow the lead of the serpent. It's intriguing to see how at the end of the Bible, in Revelation twenty-two nineteen. People are warned that those who take away from God's word in the book of Revelation, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. And the woman's taking away from God's word and adding to it begins a process that culminates in her and her husband having their access to the tree of life and God's holy garden taken away. Handling God's word and claiming to speak on behalf of God is a serious matter. So at this point, the serpent has begun with a crafty questioning of God's word. The woman has begun to be deceived. The serpent's initial scheming calls into question God's word. It has cleverly played its first card to set the stage for what comes next. In verse 4, we hear the serpent's flat rejection of God's word. You will not surely die. The serpent quotes God's threat from Genesis 2.17 and adds the word not in front of it. This is the serpent's first explicit lie. Yahweh had emphatically warned Adam that they would certainly die as a result of eating fruit from that tree. The serpent directly, clearly rejects and opposes that warning. As shocking as that should have been to the woman to hear God's word so flatly contradicted, in verse 5, the serpent plays its ace of spades providing some revelation for the woman to consider. Serpent presumes to explain something God knows. 
This is the serpent's killing stroke, and it is masterful. The serpent's initial approach to the woman was with a question, which implies that the serpent lacks knowledge. At first, it asked the woman about what God had said, which she had the ability to accurately repeat, relatively, and explain, though she fudged the details. All the while, it's clear the serpent knows what God said. But here, the serpent goes further, claiming to reveal something God has not said, something that God knows deep inside himself. How would the serpent have such knowledge? The woman doesn't think to ask that question. The serpent doesn't argue for its claim. The serpent doesn't give reasons or attempt to persuade. This is simply a bald-faced lie, a, a knowledge claim of revelation. The serpent implicitly claims to know more about God than the woman does. Thus, in this whole conversation, the serpent is presenting itself as a rival voice for humans. So the major point here comes down to the question, whose word will humanity believe and obey? Whose voice will they listen to? And given that the alternative voice is coming from an animal, the humans should have rejected that voice outright. What does the serpent claim God knows? First, Notice that the serpent is still playing with God's actual words. The phrase, when you eat of it, is the same phrase translated in 2.17 as part of God's warning to Adam in the day that you eat of it. Whereas God explained with his words one certain result of their eating the fruit in question, the serpent suggests that God knows of another set of results. The first result is that your eyes will be opened. What does this mean? Are their eyes not already opened? Apparently, the woman would have been expected to recognize this as a figure of speech. Of course, she could literally see with her physical eyeballs, but the serpent is presenting the possibility of a new awareness. What is it that she will be able to see with her newly opened eyes? Good and evil. This is where we must recall the name of this tree, that the woman described as in the middle of the garden. God introduced the tree to Adam as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or the knowing good and evil tree. Yahweh had said that eating fruit from this tree would result in their certain death. The serpent indicates that God knows of a different result, a result that God chose not to reveal to Adam. The serpent's ruse is clever here. It would have made a certain kind of sense if God had said, when you eat from the knowing good and evil tree, you will know good and evil. Later in chapter 3, God will say that if they eat from the tree of life, they live forever. So the serpent suggests that the knowing good and evil tree produces fruit that enables the eater to know good and evil. But God said that eating that fruit would result in death. The serpent said, that's not true. Thus, the serpent has implied that God is a liar, and the serpent claims to know the real reason, the secret reason, that God really didn't want them to eat the fruit from this special tree. The serpent's setting the final piece of the trap here. It says that God knows that Adam and his wife would become like God. But we know from chapter 1 that God created Adam and his wife together as his image in his likeness. They're already like God in all the ways that they should be like God. But the serpent suggests that there is a way that they can be like God that God doesn't want. But it's not impossible. They can change. They can gain this off-limits likeness to God. 
Notice that the serpent didn't deny the prohibition. When the woman said that God had prohibited them from touching and eating the fruit from that one tree, the serpent didn't say, no, God didn't really make that command. No, that's not really what God said. No, that's not really what God wants. Instead, the serpent denied the warning, the threat of punishment, and replaced it with a promise of reward. No, you won't really die. Instead, you will become like God. You'll know good and evil the way God knows good and evil. God may have commanded you not to, but you can do it anyway. He won't stop you, and he won't punish you. But again, the serpent offers no proof of its claims. The serpent's voice rings in the ears of the woman and her husband who was with her. The serpent's voice drowns out the memory of God's word. The serpent's words conflict with, directly contradict, and subvert God's words. And the choice for the woman and the choice for the man comes down to whose voice will they believe? Whose voice will they heed? Whose voice will they trust? To know good and evil the way God does is to determine what is good and what is evil. We've considered alternative names for this tree. It could be called the death tree. It could be called the free will tree. It could be called the autonomous insight tree. The serpent suggests that eating the fruit will result in knowing good and evil, understood as deciding what is good and what is evil for themselves. This, too, is a lie. In fact, as we'll see in the next verse, the woman can autonomously decide what is good and what is evil for herself already. Eating the fruit does not bestow this ability. Instead, exercising this ability, this choice, will result in eating the fruit. And eating the fruit will result in death, just as God said it would. In the first part of verse 6, Moses describes the woman's resolve. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... This is where Moses grants us some insight into the inner workings of the woman's processing. This is where we realize that she has been deceived. She has believed the serpent's words. She has rejected God's word. She resolves to eat the forbidden fruit. Moses describes it as a kind of seeing. She looks at the fruit of this tree and she sees it differently now. Whereas before she had seen it as off-limits. Now she sees it as uniquely desirable. In fact, she sees the tree as good. She saw that it was good. We read that exact phrase seven times in Genesis chapter 1, but it sounded like this. And God saw that it was good. That the woman saw that it was good may be an indication that she is here acting like God, but in an inappropriate way. She's determining what is good as the Creator had done. She's not merely being like God, she's putting herself in the place of God. Specifically, she assesses the tree as good for food. Back in Genesis 2.9, we learned that every tree in the garden was good for food, presumably including this one. Even though they were forbidden from eating the fruit from this tree, the fruit was genuinely edible. She also sees it as a delight to the eyes. This also fits with how all the trees in the garden were described... Pleasant to the sight is how Moses put it in 2.9. So far, so true. But it's the third description that presents the problem. She sees this tree as to be desired to make one wise. Oh dear. Moses 
clues his original readers in, some, in, in on something that is easy for us to miss. The Hebrew word translated to be desired is the word that shows up in the Tenth Commandment. She saw that the tree was to be coveted to make one wise. Moses doubles up on this one as the word translated delight also shows up in the Tenth Commandment in Deuteronomy 5.21. Thus, Moses subtly indicates that the woman is guilty of coveting the wisdom that the serpent implied was available through eating the fruit of this tree. She was deceived and became a transgressor. How does she see it this way? How does she look at the fruit and conclude from looking at it, that's going to make me wise? I suppose it's similar to how I might look at broccoli and conclude, that's going to make me healthy. It's not because the broccoli looks particularly health-giving, whatever that might mean. It's because I've been told by people I trust that eating broccoli will benefit my health. So it is that the woman concludes that the fruit from the knowing good and evil tree will make her wise because she has been told. And she's choosing to trust the one who told her this. The problem is that she was told earlier by a much more reputable source that eating that fruit would result in her certain death. Verse 6 doesn't mention the serpent again, but I'd like to consider its vantage point for a moment. Some of you have seen Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, in which viewers are treated to one of the most iconic portrayals of the Joker as Batman's great nemesis. As Batman seeks to understand his opponent, the Joker's approach is summarized with this profound line, some men just want to watch the world burn. I suggest that's what the serpent is after here. You see, the serpent didn't actually assert any authority to overturn the created order. It never commanded the woman, eat the fruit. The serpent wasn't working to entice the woman to worship it or to worship Satan. Instead, mirrored by the joker, the serpent served as an agent of chaos, disrupting the created order. We don't here get any mosaic commentary on the motives of the serpent. No reflections on what it or what Satan was seeking to accomplish. But by the way the temptation was presented, it's relatively clear that the serpent has craftily gotten the woman to make an independent judgment, to choose to trust the unreliable word of the serpent and to reject the completely reliable word of God. The serpent gets the woman to walk by sight rather than walk by faith in what God had said. As commentator Derek Kidner summarized many years ago, Eve listened to a creature instead of the Creator, followed her impressions against her instructions, and made self-fulfillment her goal. How we are all our first mother's children. The second part of verse 6 sublimely and simply summarizes the couple's rebellion. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Oh, what treason. Yes, as Hosea implied in Hosea 6, 7, Adam transgressed the covenant. And as Paul indicated in his reading of this passage in 1 Timothy 2, Adam was not deceived. He ate willingly, knowingly, high-handedly. Moses again includes some subtle clues to enhance the treachery. Thus far in Genesis, only God has been the subject of the verb take. 
In chapter 2, it was Yahweh Elohim who took the man and put him in the garden. It was Yahweh Elohim who took flesh and bone from Adam's side to make the woman. It was Yahweh Elohim who took the woman out of the man. Now it's the woman who took the forbidden fruit. She took, she ate, she gave, he ate. Summarized so simply. Commentator Jonathan Serfati writes, Genesis 3 is the most tragic chapter in the whole Bible. For the same reasons, 3.6 is the most tragic single verse in all the Bible. Indeed. Adam was with her. Was he not listening to the conversation? I suppose that's possible. Why did he receive what she gave? Since the serpent's words didn't deceive him, why did he eat the fruit? This is one of the great mysteries that theologians have wrestled with, and the scriptures do not give a complete answer. We will get further information later in chapter 3, as God will indict Adam for listening to the voice of his wife. Here we're not told what she said. Did she persuade him? Did she repeat the serpent's claims? Did she just bat her eyes at him? One Jewish commentator says simply, It is the way of the world for the man to be easily swayed by the woman. Others have suggested he was motivated by twisted love for her. He wanted to please her more than pleasing God. And so he did what she wanted him to do. We can speculate all day long, but the text only points to his obeying his wife when she was directing him to disobey God. Thus, we could also ask the question, what should he have done? Simply put, he should have killed the snake. He should have guarded the garden. He should have rejected the serpent's rejection of God's word. James Hamilton says it well. The man whose responsibility it was to keep the garden should long ago have interrupted the father of lies, politely asked him to leave, and if the snake refused to depart, informed him that he could only continue to poison the mind of the woman over his own dead body. That is to say, Adam should have protected the woman, and if necessary, he should have fought the snake to the death. Instead, he too heeded the wrong voice, the voice of his wife, as her voice apparently echoed the voice of the serpent. The man submitted to the woman, the woman submitted to the serpent, and no one submitted to God. In verse 7, Moses narrates the immediate effects. We read, we read, about the, we read here about the couple's mortification. Now, a word about the word mortification is in order. I'm using the word with both of its typical meanings. Its older meaning refers to death. More commonly today, we speak of being mortified if we're incredibly embarrassed. Thus, the couple's mortification refers to their death and their shame. Look at verse 7 again. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. First, we deal with their newly opened eyes, which I take as a reference to the change of human nature. This is where we face the question, who was telling the truth, God or the serpent? The serpent said, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Here we read, then the eyes of both were opened. What did God say? Back in 2.17, when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Moses says, their eyes were opened. Does this mean the serpent was telling the truth? Or does Moses mean something different? I think Moses doesn't mean the same thing the serpent meant. This is where Moses plays with the serpent's craftiness. As the serpent played with God's words, now Moses, the spirit-inspired narrator, plays with the serpent's words. 
we know that Moses is on God's side in all of this. So we expect him to agree with God. The serpent had said that their eyes would be opened and they would know good and evil. Instead, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. Didn't they know they were naked before? Yes, they surely did. But now they view their nakedness differently. Just as she looked at the fruit and of that tree differently after believing the serpent's words, now she looks at herself and her husband differently. However, there's more here. Their eyes being opened seems to reflect a genuine change of their nature. Let's get philosophical for just a minute within biblical parameters. It can be a challenge to speak of human nature within biblical categories. In particular, we sometimes speak of having a sinful nature, even as Christians. And unfortunately, in my opinion, some Bible translations have reinforced this language by using the phrase sinful nature in certain places in Paul's letters. From the larger biblical storyline, I think we can simplify the picture a bit and clarify it. I believe we can see essentially four potential stages of human nature. Potential, because not everyone goes through all four of these stages. Raw, wretched, redeemed, and resurrected. Adam and Eve in the garden in chapter 2 reflect raw human nature. This is human nature as God created it. This would include their ability to obey or disobey, to remain faithful or rebel. They chose to rebel. Thus, human nature became wretched. I'm borrowing the word from Paul in Romans 7.25. I believe the last part of Romans 7 has some tight connections with Genesis 3, and I believe the bulk of that passage describes how the wretched human nature responds when it is confronted by God's commands. When Adam's and Eve's eyes were opened, I think perhaps their raw human nature was changed to this wretched human nature. We could call this fallen human nature to fit with traditional theological categories, or we could call it the sinful nature, as long as we recognize that we're not talking about something people have. We're talking about something people are. Ironically, the opening of the eyes is a true blinding. As Paul cries out in Romans 7.25, Oh, wretched man that I am, and then asks, Who will deliver me from this body of death? He points to Jesus as the answer. Jesus delivers us from the body of death. Jesus redeems wretched human nature. Through a redemptive opening of the eyes, when Jesus rescues us, He changes our nature. This is where the confusion lies. I don't think it's right to say, as Christians, we have a sinful nature. We have a new nature, a redeemed nature. We are a new creation. The old has passed away. We died with Christ. Our old man, our old humanity was crucified with Christ. We don't have two natures. Only Jesus has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. As the last Adam, we might even suggest that his nature was a raw human nature during the incarnation, like Adam's. But his nature never became wretched because he never chose to disobey. Instead, he moved from raw human nature directly to resurrected human nature. But as for us Christians, we have, we are a redeemed nature. Like Adam's nature, it is capable of obeying God and disobeying God, but redeemed nature 
has a spirit-empowered guarantee that there will be a trend toward obedience, a movement toward faithfulness. A promise of the new covenant, after all, is that God would cause His people to obey through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is redeemed human nature. But finally, we anticipate resurrected human nature, which will eliminate the possibility of disobedience and failure. Those four stages, I believe, make up a more biblically faithful account of human nature. But I digress. As Adam's and Eve's eyes were open when they ate the forbidden fruit, they were genuinely changed. They gained a new awareness, a new view of their own nakedness. Whereas before, their nakedness had been a wonderful reality, an expression of barrier-free intimacy, now it is weighed down by an overwhelming sense of vulnerability. The problem is not nakedness per se. Instead, the problem is the other person seeing my nakedness. So they move to cover themselves. This is where we need to revisit the issue of shame. The mortification of Adam and Eve consists not only in their death, their move from raw human nature to wretched human nature, but also in their shame. Thus they move to make coverings for themselves out of fig leaves. This is another place where they're acting like God in all the wrong ways. This is the first time in Genesis that someone other than God is the subject of the verb make. It seems that they begin looking at each other differently. Adam views his wife with suspicion. He covers himself to protect himself from her gaze. She might judge him. She might not approve of what she sees. Their grab for fig leaves certainly indicates their reactionary desire to cover up quick. They appear to be experiencing what one writer characterizes as a primal anxiety reaction associated with shame. They are afraid to be seen by each other. More specifically, since they use fig leaves to attempt to cover their loins, they are afraid that their sexual organs, in particular, are going to be seen and judged by the other person. I don't think I need to comment on this. I assume that this is common human experience. Fig leaves are not well suited for this kind of covering. They have holes and gaps. They break easily. They uh, flap in the wind. It doesn't provide much security. They are trying to manipulate how the other person views them. They are attempting to hide from each other, to cover their own shame. How many ways have we multiplied to do the same thing? What the serpent made sound so appealing to the woman has proven to be all lies. Now, we will see that God affirms certain aspects of what the serpent said, but we will also see how what God means by certain phrases differs from what the serpent meant. This is the serpent's craftiness. Again, it is focused on his twisting of language Sure, their eyes were opened, but that didn't mean what the serpent led the woman to believe it meant. And yes, they now determined what was good and what was evil, but that didn't happen as a result of eating the fruit. It happened as a conscious choice that then resulted in them eating the fruit in direct disobedience to God's plainly expressed command and in disregard of God's plainly expressed warning. What a pickle. We've already alluded to the remedy. And the Lord himself will speak of it in just a few verses. 
The mortification of humanity will require the mortification of Jesus to solve. He entered into the shameful experience of wretched humanity. He experienced the full weight of humans looking at him and judging him as inadequate, all the way to the point that people in authority viewed him so negatively that they delighted in having him executed in the most shameful way possible. But the author of Hebrews says that he despised the shame of the cross. Instead of hiding from it, seeking to avoid it, he walked the Calvary road, carried his cross as long as he could, and then hung there, naked and unashamed. And he died. Oh yes, he died. But through his death, he destroyed the devil, nullified his power, abolished his rule. He crushed the head of the dark power that inhabited that ancient serpent. More on that next week, and then more on that the next week. Because of the mortification of Jesus, we too can despise the shame of our everyday lives. We can look to Him for our identity. We live fully exposed, completely naked, before His eyes. And He loves us anyway. He won't reject us. He won't turn away disgusted with us. And that's not because He's ignorant That's not because we've successfully hidden from him the worst parts of us. No, he sees us, all of us. And he says, I love you anyway, and I love you forever. He proved his love by dying on that cross. And he proved that his love wasn't just empty sentiment by rising from the dead. I invite you to join me in prayer as we think about the great impact that his mortification has had. Father, we celebrate the glory of the cross. A shameful way to be executed. But it turns, you turned it toward the salvation of sinners. And we give you thanks. We marvel. We read these verses from Genesis 3 and we weep and we grieve and we wish they would have made a different choice. But you were accomplishing your purposes even there. And your glory is expanded and highlighted and emphasized as you come to redeem wretched, sinful, lost humanity. So thank you for the great plan of redemption, for the way that you accomplished it in such a mind-boggling way, a way that confounds the wisdom of the world. We thank you for covering us in the blood of our Savior. We sang of it earlier, and we celebrate the truth of it, and we pray that you would give us confidence to live it out faithfully. Help us as your people to walk confidently in this world, seeking to obey you, come what may, and seeking to find our identity in you and in what you've done for us so that we can set aside the shame that we experience, so that we can stop hiding from each other, or seeking in futility to hide from you. You see all, you know all, and you love us, and you've committed to love us forever. And so we cling to that truth, we cling to that promise, and we pray that you would stir us up, enable us to hold fast to your word, 
Help us to resist the siren voices that oppose and conflict with your word in this world, that seek to distort it and to twist it. Help us to cling to your word. Help us to love your word. Help us to exalt your word as we exalt you. And help us to heed. Help us to heed what we see and what we hear in your word. Thank you for giving us your spirit to enable us toward that end. We could not do it otherwise. Our nature, redeemed as it is, is not strong enough in itself. We require divine assistance to obey you. And so we thank you that that's exactly what you promised to give. So help us to depend on you day by day, moment by moment, as we seek to honor you and please you with our lives. Thank you for what you've done. Help us to live in a way that reflects it truly to the world around us. For Jesus' sake, amen.